Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. John David Washington is one of those guys who could have had it the easy way. He grew up as the son of actor Denzel Washington. Maybe you've heard of that dude. And you might think a lifetime of roles in blockbuster movies awaited him. But John David took a, let's say, circuitous route to his eventual destination of Hollywood. His first life had him lacing up the pads every week for a career in professional football, where he spanned the globe from Sacramento to Dusseldorf, trying to make it work. I endured uh, several concussions, um, uh, torn meniscus, torn Achilles, uh, sports hernia, broken ribs, clavicle, all in the name of that independence. You know, it, it, I was willing to sacrifice it all to, to know, to show more to myself, but I didn't know that at the time. For others, though, to show that I, I, uh, I can earn my own keep. In Spike Lee's latest, Black Klansman, John plays Ron Stallworth the first black police officer to join the ranks of the Colorado Springs Police Department. If you haven't seen it, the movie is based on Stallworth's memoir of the same name. In real life and in the film, Stallworth tries to infiltrate the local KKK chapter. He has help from a white police officer who stands in for him at meetings and wears a wire to record incriminating conversations. In this scene, Ron is at the police department interviewing for a job. He's sitting across from the two men in charge of hiring. One interviewer is a white police officer. The other is a black city employee, played by the great Isaiah Whitlock. How do you get along with people generally? Sir, they treat me right. I treat them right. Like I said before, I was raised up the right way. So I mean, I, have I, you ever had any negative... What would you do if another cop called you a... Or worse? Would that happen, sir? There's never been a black cop in this city. Now, if we make you an officer, you will, in effect, be the Jackie Robinson of the Colorado Springs Police Force. And if you know anything about Jackie Robinson, you know he had to take a lot of uh, uh, guff from his fellow teammates, the fans, other teams, and the press. I know the Jackie Roosevelt Robinson story, sir. Good. So knowing that, if somebody called you a would you be able to turn the other cheek? If I had to, sir, yes. Yes, I would. John David Washington, welcome to Bullseye. It's nice to have you on the show. (laughs) Thanks for having me. (laughs) Listening to that in audio form made me think that, like, there's two, basically two great reasons to aspire to be Spike Lee. One is one of the great filmmakers of his generation, great teacher, uh, you know, all those things. The other is if you put... Isaiah Whitlock in your movie, you can be like, hey, Isaiah, would you mind going? (laughs) Consistently, too. He never, I mean, he's always delivering that every time. (laughs) It's even funnier when you bleep it out, but you know what he's saying and you know who's saying it, too. It just gives more context to it. That was funny. (laughs) Um, But in all sincerity, welcome to the show. Thank you for coming on. Um, Thanks for having me. You were a professional football player for uh, for a pretty long time. I mean, professional football careers tend to be short. Yeah. Um, did you always aspire to be a professional athlete? 
I kind of I did it out of necessity in in a way. Um, I I wanted to be an actor because of uh, seeing my father and seeing my mother uh, play the piano. Uh, I wanted to be a performer, but um, I started playing football though because uh, my my dad started getting pretty popular in Hollywood, and uh, we started moving and moving to different places and. Uh, um, you know, started getting treated a little differently. So, um, of course, I wanted to protect my feelings, and um, I, I wanted to start making my own name. So I chose football. Now, I love the game. I always loved football. Randall Cunningham is the reason I played, seeing a person that looked like me at that position, at the quarterback position I, I had never seen before. You know what I mean? So I aspired to play in the NFL, but it was more of a rebellious sort of uh, quest of independence than it was to actually live out my dream, which was uh, which I was burying, which was acting. I had Terry Crews on the show a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, folks probably know as an actor. He was also a professional football player. Was- the Redskins, right? Was it Washington? Yeah, he played for a few. He played for a few different teams. I mm-hmm. mean, he was. Uh, he bounced around. He played in NFL Europe. His career so was actually I. a lot a lot like yours. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things that Terry Crews said to me was he kind of locked eyes with me. I mean, locked eyes with me. He was locked eyes with me the entire time. Terry Crews is very <laughs> Terry Crewsy. <laughs> it's a very powerful experience to talk to that man. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, he kind of locked eyes with me and he said, you know, with the exception of a few quarterbacks, everyone in the NFL is broken. Hmm. And like, like physically or, or just the mental? Uh, emotionally. Emotionally, oh, okay, yes. yes. His point being that it's, some, it's such a painful, brutal way to make a living that it takes a lot to drive someone to the level of success that gets you to the NFL. And I wonder if that was reflected in your experience. Yeah, I would concur with that. I, 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 it's watching football now. I, I, um, I can't believe what these young men put their bodies through, what they endure physically. Thinking about the, the human will, you know, and and to to provide for their families, to to change their circumstances. You, you got to credit them all of, and I and I'm no different. I I, I did, I endured uh, several concussions. Um, uh, torn meniscus, torn Achilles, uh, sports hernia, broken ribs, clavicle, all in the name of that independence. You know, it, it, I was willing to sacrifice it all to to know, to show more to myself, but I didn't know that at the time. For others, though, to show that I I, uh, I can earn my own keep. I am my own man. There's so many cases uh, in the NFL that they're just trying to provide for their family, trying to do better for themselves. You know, and that sort of motivation. I mean, you see it on draft day. If you, it's the draft NFL draft weekend is is a, is such an, an an interesting social study because you see these kids, um, these young men, I should say, of all nationalities, of all from all different kinds of backgrounds, have the same sort of reaction. Especially draft picks one through ten, but really all of them. They get that this dream of getting their name called. You know, and they're ready to run through a brick wall. You know, they're almost programmed in that way based off of the nature of the sport and what uh, what you think is promised for you at that rainbow, which is the NFL. You know what I mean? And um, once you get there, it totally changes. The whole perspective changes. And, and, and unfortunately, NFL really stands for not for long. And uh, there's not a, you know, it, 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 you get a sort of a crash course in how to be a professional but uh, it's not really instituted early on in these young men's life. 
And more often than not, they learn the hard way. I think there's a documentary that's called uh, Broke. And, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, the, was it the average life expectancy is three years? After, you know, after three years, they, they, they become, you know, bankrupt. So um, it, um, it it is an interesting, um, NFL specifically, is such an interesting uh, case studies for these young men in this country and how they have to sort of turn it off, you know, after they're done playing. And uh, the learning curve, you know, is, is, is narrow. I read this book where a reporter went behind the scenes with the Jets for a year. And one of the things that I don't think I had thought about was the way that relative to other major American sports and major American professional sports, because football happens once a week, like the experience of playing it is dramatically different. Like baseball and to a lesser extent, basketball are defined by their grind, you know, like mm-hmm. you have to show up every day and go and you go and do your thing and you have your hurt, you know, if you're a pitcher, your arm always, mm-hmm. hurt, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And in football, because all of that week's worth of playing is distilled into one three and a half hours, mm-hmm. he described the people basically like whole lives drove towards this unnatural high that they had to get to in order to make their bodies do the things that they had to do that was this physical hurting war that went on for a few hours once a week Mm -hmm. and then they went home and they got like a day off and then it was back to building up to Mm -hmm. that again Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, they, and they say also, in, in, especially when when young men start to get paid for the for to do that, the best ability is availability. So you talk about the grind of uh, NBA season, eighty two games, and the, the obviously the the grind of a of a of a baseball season, hockey too to a certain extent. Um, I, you know, it's it's you get, you get another one the next day or the day after. You know, Sundays you got to wait a whole other week. But that being said. Um, you you can and that's why I say not for long. You know, a lot of um, money and contracts are are, are are incentive based on availability. If you can get a certain amount of yards, if you play a certain, if you are participating in a certain amount of plays, I found out that you get a bonus. You know, so so being available or being able to work through um, injuries because there's a difference between you know being hurt and being injured. Um, those that sort of gets rewarded. Unfortunately, on the back end when it's over. Um, there hasn't been much. I mean, they've worked on compensation, you know, after football, but uh, it's still a discussion, a topic of discussion. Yeah, and I mean, football contracts are generally not guaranteed. So signing bonus—that's that's what you play for, basically. That's the only thing guaranteed—the upfront money. But they can they can terminate your contract at any time, and and you split ways. And you know, if you get offered a hundred million dollars for four years, but you get you know thirty of it up front, the second year they can cut ties, and you don't get the rest of your money. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest this week is John David Washington. He's in the Spike Lee movie Black Klansman, which is out now. When you auditioned for Ballers, you were still in a boot from the injury that ended your football career. Was it just a, well, what's the worst that could happen situation when when you took that meeting or whatever it's called went out to that audition <laughs> took the meeting yeah um, yeah i was in, in a boot and crutches on a strong dose of uh painkillers um now i had prepared for the audition i had been working 
work in the scenes with my mom, actually. She's the one that dropped me off, too. So uh, shout out to Pauletta. Um, so I got up there with Sheila Jaffe, who I call my other mother in the uh, in the industry. And um, I, I thought that, yeah, I, I mean, I've been turned down so many times in the, in the NFL. I, I, I'm sort of, you know, I'm, I'm sort of used to, I'm sort of impervious to this pain and rejection. So I, I, I what's the worst that can happen? I guess I had nothing to lose, and I'm feeling pretty good on the on these uh, on the medication. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, why not? You know what I mean? But like, I knew how much I wanted. It wasn't why not? Like, sure, I'll try acting. It wasn't like that because, in fact, uh, my agent, who, who Andrew Finkelstein. Um, who told me about the audition, I was resisting at first because I wanted to come here to New York and study for a year at least and then start going on auditions. And he says, he told me that, you know, you, you're not going to get the job. You're not going to get a lot of jobs. You're going to get turned down a lot, but you need to get used to auditioning, getting in the room and getting comfortable, studied or not studied. And I was like, oh, that's a good point. And I'm used to getting rejected anyway. So, all right, I can do that. So well, the plan was go in there, Go into this audition and sort of, you know, get get torn up. Tell me what to work on and sort of apply those things when I got to New York and started studying. Um, and the craziest things started happening. Um, they they just kept inviting me back, kept inviting me back. And 10 auditions later, I got it. Did you say 10? 10. 10 auditions, yeah. That's a lot of auditions, dude. <laughs> yeah, well, they because they were like, they had to be sure. I mean, you know, it's just guys basically coming off the street. Like, they couldn't. Believe, I mean, it, it was it was a huge. I had to fight. I had to fight. There was a lot of people trying to get that job, and uh, and they had to be sure. Sheila Jaffe, I got to shout her out. Peter Berg, uh, HBO, they supported me first. There was still some resistance, but those, they, the, Peter Berg, uh, Sheila Jaffe, and Papa Dave Levinson, they they really backed me. They were in my corner, and uh, Sheila Jaffe actually, after the third audition, sh- shot me a text telling me, um, "You should retire from football. Like th- you were meant to do this." You know, they were, I think they, you know, they couldn't believe that, I, you know, I've never done it before. So um, I, I'm, I'm, I love her to death for that. Let's hear a little bit from the first season of Ballers uh, from a few years ago. So in this scene, Ricky arranged to meet with his ex-girlfriend, Annabella, played by Annabella Acosta. And uh, Annabella, called Bella, left Ricky because she was fed up with his cheating. And they're standing in front of a public fountain and Ricky is holding a bouquet of roses and lilies. Bella, I'm sorry I lost my head, okay? I'm sorry for everything. I keep repeating my mistakes, but I'm trying to change. I'm trying to do things different. <laughs> wow. Ricky, you can't be serious. <laughs> Seven carrot cities. You like it? Look at that. What do you think? You really believe you're ready for marriage? Because after all, I mean, you know, this is an engagement ring, right? What? Because I know you don't think I'm so stupid, so I would just accept a bull**t apology. No, baby, no, because this is to me. I... There is no ring, no house, no car. Not even the whole f-ing diamond can buy my forgiveness. Baby, that's, that's a $400,000 ring! Kobe spent $4 million, you delusional f- He makes more than me! Then come back! Baby, baby, come back. Baby, come back. I got it, I got it, I got it. Baby, 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 you, we can get married if you want to. We can get married if you want to. <laughs> oh, my God. That dude. <laughs> Ricky Jarrett, man. <laughs> he's, he's crazy. What did you realize you, I mean, you had spent 
your whole life with a dad who was in movies from when you were little. He was, uh, you know, he was a new actor. Um, by the time you were an adult, he was a movie star. You know, you had been in, you're in Malcolm X. <laughs> Um, you had, you'd, you'd done this to some, this had been a huge part of your life, your entire life. Mm -hmm. But when you showed up for set as basically a greenhorn, Mm -hmm. what did you realize you did not know? What did I realize? Everything, you know, how to even (laughs) read a call sheet, um, you know, just, just what blocking meant. Uh, I had to act like I did, but I was like, "What? What is this? What? What? What does what call time mean?" <laughs> you know, I was just, I was like, I was ignorant to a lot of that stuff. And you know, rehearsal when we would rehearse, you know, I'm like going full tilt, like I'm not like reserving anything for 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 the scene, and, and I was just ready to go at all time, every take. Yes, yes, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. I mean, I'm always ready, but just I was just so I had a very still a very much a football very much a football mentality and uh was wearing myself out you know <laughs> I, I i slept well that first day and uh and also when i cut the first day also was um was a club scene so like there was like a whole bunch of extras and here comes the rock and and pete berg is like you ready because i know that they you know this they're still taking a chance on me i did i because uh, sheila also says some people are great auditioners and they and they can't you know they don't step up to the plate when it's game time others aren't very good auditioners are great when they get the job so I knew I had a lot of pressure on me, and and, and I wanted to make them right because they fought for me. Because there were some people that that didn't necessarily believe, so they did. So I, I I had a lot on the line, and I just I just went for it. I, I just went for it. But I'm definitely looking around like at Pete and at at, at the Rock and at Omar and all these extras, and I'm like, man, this is crazy. I'm uh, what 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 have I done? <laughs> what, what? Wait, I, I think. Wait, let's time out, guys. Time out. I need another month. You know, but uh, no, I went for it. I went for it. How did you get Black Klansman? I got a text message from Spike Lee saying, <laughs> <laughs> saying we quote, all have this story. <laughs> yeah, I mean, right? No, you don't. Everybody gets texted from him, right? I mean, I got to say, yo, this Spike called me in those exact words. Yo, this Spike called me. Um, I um. Yeah, you know, I'm thinking this is a prank. I definitely didn't think he had my number, so I didn't know what was going on. <laughs> um, but I call him because I, I need this would be great. I need the job. You know, I'm out here, you know, trying to get jobs. So um, I called him, and he and he sort of soft pitched me the story about a the the, the first African American detective in Colorado Springs that infiltrates the Ku Klux Klan. Now I'm thinking, you know, was it the Car- is it Carlos Bigsby, the Bigsby star, uh, uh, skit by Dave Chappelle? I'm like, oh, is this some sort of play on that? But I'm in because Jordan Peele and Spike are in, so I'm in. But he says no, there is a book, and he's going to send it to me. He sends me the book around Star Wars, Black Klansman. Uh, I read it and I call him back, and I, I I I'm blown away. I tell him how much I loved it, and he said, all right, I'll see you this summer. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I got it. Now, I, I I had done a movie for his wife who, who produced this movie called Monster that premiered in Sundance last year. So he was familiar with that and and some stuff on Ballers. So um, you know he knew, but I mean he he knew of my work. But um, yeah, that was basically the audition process. More of my interview with John David Washington after a quick break. He'll tell me about what it was like to be in Black Klansman and particularly what it was like to learn to empathize with a cop. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI. 
REI believes that a life outdoors is a life well-lived. And they have for 80 years. So check out their podcast, Wild Ideas Worth Living, for inspiring stories of people and taking the road less traveled. Hear from explorers, athletes, authors, and experts in the field. Follow how they're taking wild ideas and making them a reality every day. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Angie Thomas went from church secretary to best-selling author with her book, The Hate You Give. Dang, I just can't come out the house now and look any kind of way. Somebody's going to be like, Angie Thomas was in Kroger in her robe. What? I can't do that. She tells me what's in book number two. This week on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Hey everyone, it's John Roderick from the Friendly Fire podcast here with Adam Pranica and Ben Harrison. When was the last time you really liked watching a war film? With Friendly Fire, you get to do it with us. Yeah, you don't even necessarily have to have seen the movie to get a lot out of an episode of Friendly Fire. In many cases, we would recommend that you not watch the movie because there are some really, really bad war movies. But a bad war movie makes a great war movie podcast. And in all cases, we recommend you listen to our show. (laughs) So subscribe and download to Friendly Fire wherever you get your podcasts. To the victor go the spoiler alerts. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm in the studio with John David Washington. He's the star of Black Klansman. He also plays the NFL player Ricky Jarrett on HBO's Ballers. Let's hear another scene from Black Klansman um, and my guest, John David Washington, who's the star of the film. So uh, John David's character and his partner, Flip, who's played by Adam Driver, are at the police station. And they've just come back from... Uh, uh, this is relatively early in the film, uh, uh, an undercover uh, an undercover operation at a meeting, at a Klan meeting. And Flip, who is white and is the in-person Ron, um, is upset because his cover was almost blown by one of the Klansmen who's very suspicious of him. And uh, that guy basically just tried to uh, get him to take a lie detector test at gunpoint and also drop his trousers to prove that he was not Jewish. And he <laughs> only very narrowly escaped the situation. I didn't want to say what trapped but that Peckerwood had a gun in my face. And he was an hair away from pulling the trigger. And he didn't. But he could have. And then I would have been dead. For what? Stopping some jerk-offs from playing dress-up? Flip, it's intel. Well, I'm not risking my life to prevent some rednecks from lighting a couple sticks on fire. This is the job. What's your problem? That's my problem. For you, it's a crusade. For me, it's a job. It's not personal, nor should it be. Why haven't you bought into this? Why should I? Because you're Jewish, brother. The so-called chosen people. You've been passing for a wasp. White Anglo-Saxon Protestant, cherry pie hot dog white boy. Hmm. That's what some light-skinned black folks do. They pass for white. Doesn't that hatred you've been hearing the Klan say, doesn't that piss you off? Of course it does. Then why are you acting like you ain't got skin in the game, brother? Rookie, that's my f***ing business. It's our business. Your voice is so important in this film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he had to convince the uh, David, he had David Duke convinced and uh, Klan's members convinced that he was a racist white man. Uh, you're making choices both when he is on and off the phone. Like, I feel like this would be a different story if 
the premise was that he was doing, you know, a, a di- white voice, direct one to one code switching. If he was doing a white people voice on the phone and uh, uh, and a black people voice off the phone, um, in the in the ways that people think of them, it would be a less complex story for this character than the way that you chose to do it. I was that was another what was so compelling about the book even just how he you know Ron Starworth talked about this um that he he didn't change his voice at all you know what I mean and um I love that you know and the the whole you know as we understand code switching and all that um he he saw it as he had he got into character as as an undercover detective does he talked about that you know being like acting and getting into character he had to speak these words of hatred, the vernacular of uh, of racism and hate, but but he didn't change, the, you know, his voice at all. So um, I couldn't have either. I shouldn't have either. I would I, I would have done a disservice to to the man and to the film if I if I if I'd have done that. So um, I just wanted to keep it as authentic as possible, um, and um, and to be able to to uh, to also understand as I did reading it and doing research how complicated it is to be an African-American detective, police officer in this country, not blue enough for the department, not black enough for your own community, you know, and to be able to display that uh, cinematically um, was a great opportunity for me um, to, to explore. It was, it was something I was very curious about and uh, wanted to, to it, it meant a lot to me to be able to, to, to put on display how thankless of a job it is and how we as a community need to be, especially in the African American community, need to be more specific with our contentions, with our, with you know with um, you know how we feel about uh, law enforcement, you know, because there are great there are some cases out there. I think I think Ron Starworth is an American hero. During his investigation, there were no cross burnings, there were no uh, terrorist acts, violent acts on the in, in the community during that time. That's a big deal to me. That's a big deal because he wasn't trying to change the world, and it was also a big deal that he had gotten great support from white officers. That's you know that helped him in this case. It wasn't just one man on a mission, you know, you know, cinema, you know, movie wise that would have been convenient, but it wasn't. And 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 Spike held that true to, to be true in the film as well. So that um, that was a big deal to me. That's that's heroic. That he is a man that did his job, and um, and I'm just glad. Because of the, the the it's such a unique case and story, that uh, I'm just so uh, happy and and um, proud to be a part of uh, telling that story in a movie. Your character's girlfriend in the film is an activist who is opposed to the police in the United States pretty directly, um, and there were criticisms of the film, including from uh, Boots Riley, who has been a guest on this show and. Um, is a guy I've known for a long time. Mm-hmm. That's um, right, the Bay, Bay Area, right? Kind yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Total teenage hero of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, who who are critical of the idea that in a story about race in America, a police officer should be a hero? How did you feel about that? Was that something that you thought about before that came up after the movie came out? Uh, no, I know, and and shout out to Boost Riley. I, I saw his film, and that was that was it was crazy. And we we ain't never seen anything like that, you know. That was 
we haven't seen anything like it. And uh, I think um, it's important uh, that uh, we're in a great time right now in film and cinema in this business that we're getting opportunities to um, to tell our stories in certain parts of the world, certain communities are getting our stories out there, that they're putting money, they're funding these ideas and these these great writers and, and directors out there. So that's it's it's all positive. But and, uh, like, I, and so for, forgive me, but I don't I don't want to like I don't want to give the impression that it's like a binary between uh, this movie and, and that movie because I know uh, that I know how much Boots admires Spike Lee and his work and uh, how much about the film he also admired mm. and he he made he worked very hard to to make that clear when he was being critical. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, no, I, I um again I, I kind of alluded to it earlier. I, I before the research. Um, before I got, and I did another film called Monsters and Men, and I got to do ride-alongs for about a month and a half, and 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 be with a lot of uh, 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 um, police officers of color. I didn't realize what they went through, you know. So like uh, Laura Harrier's character, I would I probably would have been more on that side until I got the full perspective, a fuller, more clear perspective on uh, what they do. There's a lot of you know, men and women in the minority that um, that are protected and serving that don't get thank you, that are, are, are that get nothing but criticism, get lumped into a lot of police officers that have abused their power, that are uh, incompetent in how they, uh, you know, how they handle things. So that was very important for me. Um, this is a man, Ron Starr was a man with great integrity. You know, he, he didn't apologize. He was unapologetically black. You know, he'll tell you that he was a man of his community. You know, I think he's, he says it to to the love interest, uh, to Laura's character towards the end. Like, just because I don't wear a black beret, black uh, gloves or leather jacket, that I'm not for the liberation of my people. He feels like there's a way to do it from the inside. There's a way to do it. And the law was on his side when confronting a David Duke, you know. And, you know, you could have made a movie about how he even came into being a police, how he got to become a detective, a police uh, 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 Colorado Springs uh, detective, I mean, in the 70s. So uh, to me, what what I listed earlier about why he's a hero is because of uh, he was successful in his mission uh, makes is is what I would has how I would respond. You know, again, this is one case. This is this is a man that that uh, was successful in this case. And he did it to me. He did it the right way. John David Washington, I'm so grateful you came on Bullseye. It was so so great to get to talk to you, and and thanks for your wonderful work in this in this movie and elsewhere. I appreciate that so much. Thanks for having me. This was great. John David Washington. He stars on the big screen in Black Klansman, and on the small one in HBO's Ballers. We've come to the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where um, Ragu, our fill-in producer, saw a lady feeding the birds and ducks in the middle of a thunderstorm, um, which really gives the lie to that idea that uh, people in L.A. can't handle the rain. I also saw either a teen or a tween throwing two heavy bags into the lake, and I have no idea what was inside them. No idea. There were a lot of theories in the office, but we could not come up with any definitive answers. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He's 
lollygagging around in Italy, so Ragu Manavalin filled in for him. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We got help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellow at MaximumFun.org is Shana Deloria. Our interstitial music comes to us from Dan Wally, a.k.a. DJW. Thanks, as always, to Dan for sharing it. Our theme song comes from the Go Team. Thank you to them and to their label, Memphis Industries, who let us use that music for free. We will be forever grateful. And did you know that we have been making this show for literally over a thousand years? Maybe not literally over a thousand years, uh, but like almost 20 years. And all of our shows are on our website at MaximumFun.org. You can also find uh, many of them on our YouTube channel. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne YouTube. Uh, You can find lots of cool updates and new show announcements and stuff like that on Facebook if you like Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. And you can find us on Twitter at Bullseye. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.